Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last of the prophets, the last book in the Old Testament. That puts it about three-quarters of the way through your Bible, unless you have a really big study Bible that puts lots of notes in the New Testament. All right, if you're looking for the passage on the Bible that's there in the pew rack, it's on page 950. This is the fifth of six oracles, of six statements that Malachi gives to the people. And remember, it comes in this question and answer format where God declares a truth and then Malachi, speaking on behalf of the faithless people, asks a question to which God then responds. Malachi has condemned the spiritual apathy of God's people. When they come to worship, they bring flawed sacrifices. They've ignored the commands of God. They refuse to repent of sin. When God shows them their sin, they refuse to admit that they were wrong. They refuse to turn from sin. And so listen as I read. This is Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Malachi 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. My seminary advisor, my preaching professor, finds his, Christ, his church in crisis. He says giving is low, staff feels undersupported, missions is anemic. So he interrupts the normal Sunday worship service. He comes up when he would normally pray and, and apologizes to the visitors. He says, I have to deal with a, a church family matter, and I know it may make some of you uncomfortable, but it must be done. So he draws a long breath to brace himself, and he continues. It has come to my attention that a sizable amount of money is missing from the church. I'm not sure who has it, but I can say in all honesty before God that I, as your pastor, am not guilty of any wrongdoing in the matter. I did not steal the Lord's money. You can imagine the congregation shifting uncomfortably. It says, I'm convinced that no one on the staff is guilty, but the fact remains that we're missing a lot of money. He continues the admonition with, with warnings against those who would steal, and not just steal anywhere, but steal from the church, that they would take from God what is his. He gets on a roll, and, and as a Baptist preacher, he's getting now some amens rolling from the congregation. Finally, he concludes, 
much more quietly this time. The money we are missing is not money that someone gave and someone else stole. The money we are missing is the money that God told you to give and you never gave. And he says at this point, the congregation did exactly what he expected them to do. He says there was a pause of a couple of seconds and then a collective like sigh of relief. Oh. And then he says people actually began to chuckle a little bit. Uncomfortably at first, but it kind of rolled through the congregation. Now he, he had actually expected this response. It's here that his pastoral heart became clear for his congregation. I can tell by your laughter, he says as he leans in, now in almost a whisper, that you think this is less of a sin. But that is not what God says. And then he reads Malachi chapter 3. Because Malachi is not subtle. I mean, look again at verse 8 of Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. The people ask, but, but how have we robbed you? You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. He says then in verse 9 that the people, the entire nation, is under a curse because they are robbing God. Now again, we might sort of shrug our shoulders and say, this, this sounds like hyperbole. God is speaking in, in la exalted language to try and highlight the sin of the people. But he's speaking in, in real and practical terms. To withhold from God that which belongs to him is to rob God. It's the moral equivalent of scaling the gates of the temple, stealing past the temple guards, and, and stealing the gold ornaments from inside the temple itself. Now, if anyone were to do that, and in times through the nation of Israel's history, they had seen conquerors come and do that very thing, the people would have been disgusted. You can't walk into the temple of God and walk out with God's stuff and not expect us to get upset. And yet God is telling them, that's the very thing that you're doing. It's as if you have walked into the, into the storehouses of God, you have taken from the tithes which were commanded by God and have walked away with them. You are robbing me, is what God says. Because the people, the people are stewards of all that God had given them. We think of the land in which they live as the promised land, as if it was promised that it would belong to them. Now, the promise was made to them, but the land always belonged to God. Now, that's most obvious probably in the book of Leviticus because God says it explicitly. In Leviticus 25, when he's giving them commands about, about forgiving debts of others, when he's giving them commands about returning the land to the family to whom it was originally assigned when they first went into the promised land. God says explicitly in Leviticus 25, verse 23, that the land belongs to him. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. You don't own the promised land. You live in the promised land. 
The promised land belongs to God. You heard it in Psalm 50, our call to worship today, that the cattle on the hills, all the birds of the sky, everything belongs to the Lord. You are a tenant. You work the land on the behalf of a good and gracious king. You are a steward, one who controls the resources of another, but they don't ultimately belong to you. And yet the people in Malachi's day, they're living as if there is no difference between a world in which God exists and a world without God. They're saying God's existence makes no practical bearing on my life because God's promises seem empty to them. It doesn't matter if they with if they withhold their tithes. Now, some sins are more obvious, even in the book of of Malachi. If you marry a foreigner who rejects the God of the covenant, well, that will become public knowledge. If you show up in the temple with an obviously sick animal, now, you might have paid off the priest so that he'll overlook it, but the other worshipers all know the scam that's going on. They can see this creature hobble its way up or be dragged by you. But the tithe... Well, that one's easier to hide, especially in an agrarian culture. I mean, even your neighbors who would know how big your field was, they would have a sense of how, how great your crop yield was because of what theirs was like. They still wouldn't be able to measure your tithe brought to the Lord. Because, well, you, I mean, you could always say, well, but I, I brought half of it to the last festival. I mean, I'm only bringing part of it this time. And even if they saw all of it, you could easily skim off the top but remember, a tithe just means one-tenth. It was a command of God because the Levites, one-twelfth of the people of God, needed the support from the tithe along with the temple, which gets you to the 10% needed for the running of God's economy. And, and, and this isn't merely a political tax. This is a tithe given for the continuance of the temple the place where God dwells with his people, and yet the people feel like they can get away without giving a tithe. Now, a partial tithe is no tithe at all. I mean, just by definition. It's no longer a tithe. If you're giving 4%, it doesn't count as a tenth. The, the math doesn't work out. But the people are living as if it doesn't matter whether God exists or not, because when I give a tithe, I don't notice any practical change in my life. If I withhold the tithe, well, I don't notice any real change in my life. Plus, God seems uninvolved. It doesn't matter if I give. It doesn't matter if I keep it for myself. And the people then look at the circumstances around them, the fact that, that maybe life is harder than it was before. Maybe the crop yield this season wasn't as good. And so they make excuses that, well, the tough times now become an excuse that I, I need not give a tithe. I mean, if, if I had enough, I would give, but I don't have enough now. When things get better, then I can give more. When I pay off my debt, then I'll be able to give. When I get the raise that I think is coming, then I'll give God his tithe. See, we too might feel like there is no difference between a world with God and a world without God. Because we feel sorrow and struggle. And I don't just mean in, in terms of your finances or your money or your wealth or your job, your vocation. I mean in all areas of life. You get sick and your children get sick. You visit the emergency room. 
You receive the same phone calls that your neighbors who live as if there is no God receive. What point is there anyway? Like, why am I still chasing after God if he's not doing anything for me? In our sorrow and struggle, in our loneliness and sadness, we wonder, does God see what's happening? Does God care? And yet God's intervention here in Malachi, his announcement through his message makes clear that God sees, that he knows that he cares. Because he, he asks the people. He, he gives them first the command, but, but it, it's filled with promise. Look, look again at verses 9 and 10. That the people are under a curse. The nation is cursed by God because they are robbing God. And then look at verse 10. He gives them a command, but it's, but it's filled then with this promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, that's just a practical command. You need to bring the offerings so that the storehouses are full, that the Levites are provided for, that the temple continues to function. But then God, in, in verse 10, continues, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God is promising to bless his people with blessing that gushes down from heaven. Blessing which, which fills their land of promise and then overflows into the world with the blessing of God. Because this is who God is. God is the God of blessing. God is the God of forgiveness. He is the God of mercy. Look, look back at verse 6. Malachi 3, verse 6. God makes the statement, I, the Lord, do not change. God is declaring himself faithful to his own promises, which is good news for the people, continuing in verse 6, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. The only reason that the nation even continues to exist is because of the faithfulness of God. They deserve judgment, but God made a promise. A promise that through this nation, all nations on earth would be blessed. That through these people, God would send a redeemer and rescuer for his people. Verse 7 says, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees. You have not kept them. And then he gives them this command, which is a, which is a physical instruction, which gives them a spiritual truth. Return to me. You are chasing after your, your own gods. You are chasing after your own desires. Return, turn around. It's a, it's a physical description. Turn yourself to me. And it comes with the promise that when we repent, when we return to God, that God makes the promise he will return to us. Because when we turn around, where is God? He has not abandoned us. He has not turned from us. He is standing right there, still faithful to us. I, the Lord, do not change. His promises are certain and secure. Return to me, I will return to you. The Bible says that when you confess your sins, God is faithful. God is just. God will forgive your sins. This isn't that, that mo moment in the, in the movie when, when, the, when the, the two main characters with the misunderstanding that the love might, might fall apart in this moment. 
And as one of them turns to walk away, you wonder, will there be that moment? Will she turn and look back? And, and then in that moment, because you and I anticipate it, well, then screenwriters have to come up with, with ways to, to upset our expectations. So no, she just walks away. Or no, she turns, but he's already gone. There's no guess as to what will happen when you turn around. Who will be standing there? The Lord. The God who has been faithful to his promises. The God who loves you and has proven the depth of his love. He will be standing right there. When you turn to him, he will turn to you. When you ask for forgiveness, he will be merciful. The God who loves you is standing there. Now, there can be a danger in reading a passage like Malachi in only the first person. It, like, if I read this as this is about Kevin specifically, especially the part where, where God says, test me in this and see what blessings look like. So there can be a problem if I read this as if I give, then my return on investment in the kingdom of God increases my own bank account. I mean, but isn't that, I mean, isn't that what God says in verse 10? Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. But Malachi 3 is not a promise of personal financial freedom for you. It's a promise that God will keep his promises. It's a guarantee that God will meet all of your needs in life and in death. It's a promise that the spiritual blessings that God gives to his people are guaranteed to you. Because remember, this is a covenant promise spoken to the nation of God living in the promised land. And, and the language here, the, the language where, of God pouring out blessing, the language of verse 11, that God will prevent the pests from devouring the crops, that God will take care of the vines in the vineyard. Every commentator says that this is the language the prophets use. Not just Malachi, but, but Isaiah and others. The, the language of the, the vines and, and God, God keeping the promised land free of pests. This is language not just of the, the promised land in the 5th century before Christ, but the promised land that God will bring at the end of time. When, when the land flows with milk and honey, when the blessings of God are secure for his people, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth and everything is made right, when we receive perfect blessing from God. Now, yes, I could tell you stories of how God has shown himself faithful to my family, to me and Laura, when we have continued to give. When we were newlyweds and had almost nothing, we still made a promise that we were going to give. And so I applied for a job at UPS, a job that was going to have me working terrible hours, but the pay was going to be okay. And I couldn't get hired. I called. No one would return my calls. And then, unexpectedly, a professor said, hey, there's a church looking for a youth director. I thought of you. I put in your name. A job with better pay, with much better hours, like when the sun is up, and a job that gave me 
ministry experience and made me a Presbyterian. I could tell of the time when Lorna had almost nothing left and an aunt and an uncle who'd been praying for us sent us a check, like with zeros on it. Like a check that like changes not just today, but like this month and next month. See, God can prove himself faithful, but those are tiny stories. And we could multiply them, you could share ways. But even if my bank account had dropped to zero, Malachi is not wrong. Because the promises that I really need of sin removed, of pests taken away, of the thorns and thistles being dragged out of creation, those promises are guaranteed. See, if I give only for what I will get in return, then my heart was in exactly the same place that it was when I wasn't giving anything at all. Selfishly, I was holding on to what I had, and I didn't want to give it to God. Well, if I give only as if, well, if I give a dollar, then God's going to return it, maybe fivefold or tenfold. Well, then I'm not really giving to him. I'm giving to myself. I'm in the same place where I was. But God is calling us to repent, to turn from our old ways, to give not so that we can get in return, but, to get, but give because we have already received everything that we need. We give because of the generosity of what God has done. He is the God who has rescued us from sin. Everything we have, every good gift, everything you touch or see was given to you by God. God overwhelms us with his spiritual blessings. That, that confession that, that we made Mickey read today for us, I mean, that's a long one. The reason, though, is so that you saw that once the Apostle Paul gets started talking about the blessings of God, the spiritual blessings which have been lavished upon us, he can't stop. It just keeps, it just keeps overflowing. Once you start thinking about the grace of God, you realize, oh, and God forgave me for that. Oh, and that. And even when I do good things, I do them selfishly, and God forgives me for that. And notice that God is giving the people a practical way, a tangible way to learn repentance, to display the change that God is making in their hearts. They ask the question in verse 7, when God says, return to me and I will return to you. But the people ask, well, how are we to return? I mean, this is the kind of question that, that Malachi, as a messenger of God, I mean, that's the kind of question you, you long to hear from somebody. Repent? Well, how? How do I turn to God? But, but God doesn't answer directly, does he? Look at verse 8 as it continues. God answers with a question. Will a man rob God? Now, we, we know what it's like to have somebody throw a question back at us in response to a question we've asked oftentimes done as an accusation thrown back at us or, or, or a politician or somebody sidestepping the, the truth. Like, no, no, we're not going to talk about that. Um, let me ask you another question. That's not what God's doing. He's not changing the subject. They're saying, how would we repent? He says, will a man rob God? I'll give you a practical way to repent. I'll show you an easy, tangible way for you to see the grace that I'm pouring out on you displayed. 
When your heart has been changed by God's grace, then you will give joyfully and generously. Because your wealth is an easy way to measure what's important to you. The things that you spend money on is an easy way for, to measure what matters most to you. God is giving you a path to repentance. Because money can control our hearts. It reveals what matters most to us. We might think, I'll give to God when I'm sure that I have enough for myself. As if God is unable to provide. I'll give to God when I've taken care of my family. As if God doesn't care. I'll give to God after I've had a little bit of fun. As if God's a killjoy trying to keep you down. I'll give to God after I've caught up with what the neighbors are doing. As if God's opinion is secondary and unimportant. But God, in response to the sin of his people, invites them back into relationship with him, gives them a way to understand what does repentance look like. It looks like turning from your own desires and turning back to God. Do you want a tangible way to measure that? Then stop robbing God and give him what belongs to him. Because God says I, that he will throw open the floodgates of heaven. A picture of God's extravagant blessing. A, a picture that's used elsewhere in the, in the prophets to describe the, the rain that comes down from heaven. As if God is storing the, the, the rainwaters and then pours it out on the land. So that the promised land will overflow in abundance. And yet that language of the floodgates of heaven... The first time it's used in the Bible, it is not a pretty picture. It's used in Genesis chapter 7, the beginning of the Bible. When the sin of the world had gotten so great that God determines he is going to destroy everyone for their sin and will redeem and rescue his people through one family. Now, kids, you know his name. He built a really big boat. God's going to rescue his people through Noah. And so when Noah builds the boat and God shuts his family in the ark, then what happens? Genesis 7 tells us that God opened the floodgates of heaven and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. See, the floodgates of heaven are a picture of God's judgment against the sins of his people but they are also a picture of God's blessing upon his people. The judgment of God has become the blessing of God because he not only opens the floodgates of heaven so that the water trickles down upon us, God himself opened the gates of heaven and his son stepped down among us. Jesus the Savior gives us every spiritual blessing. How? By taking our sins upon himself, by bearing our shame upon the cross, every last thing he owned was stripped away from him. The God of the universe left naked and ashamed because of your sin and mine. God will provide for our needs. We know because he tells us, I, the Lord, do not change. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, we can live generously because everything belongs to him. We can give joyfully 
because of all that he has given to us. And so for us in the New Testament, the tithe, no longer a command of God to pay for his physical temple, because Jesus, the true temple, has come down from heaven. We, we the people of God, are the temple of God. But the tithe then becomes a starting point, a, 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 a place where we could begin. What would it look like to give to God? Well, start there, don't end there. Start with the tithe that was commanded in the Old Testament, but give joyfully and generously. The, the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, when he's telling the church in Corinth that they, they should give. He warns them, remember this, this is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. A simple image that they would have seen all the time of, of a farmer sowing seed. If only a little seed is scattered, then only a little will grow. But if the farmer is generous in throwing seed, then the, the yield will be much greater. And so, so Paul says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God will provide for our needs. He says it explicitly in the, the chapter which came before that command. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God has thrown open the floodgates of heaven. The Savior himself has come. He absorbed the flood of God's judgment against our sin, and now he pours out God's blessing upon us. Malachi says that the nations will see what God has done. They will, they will call the people of God blessed because the people show forth the generosity and the blessing of God by giving him credit every time something good happens. They point to what God has done. This is only because of God's grace and his blessing upon me. They show forth the blessing of God by giving generously to him because he is not the God of their land alone. He is the Lord of all the earth. He is the one who is blessing the nations. He is the one who has promised to make right all that has gone wrong and so we long for the day when we will see God's blessing in its fullness. We hear him say, See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it. So much blessing that you'll have to share it with others. So much blessing that you'll have to announce to the nations what God has done for you. So much blessing that you'll hold on to the things of this world loosely and willingly give it to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing, for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that, that we who have withheld from you that which belongs to you, that we would feel the weight of our sin, but that we would turn from sin, that we would hear the promise of your word that when we, re we return to you, you will return to us. And so, Lord, I pray for those who feel the conviction 
of sin. Lord, work in our hearts that we might understand the depth of your love, the extravagance of your grace, the wonder of the forgiveness that we receive through Jesus. Lord, for those that, that listen to your word but, but don't know this blessing themselves, that they have not met Jesus the Savior or understood his forgiveness, Lord, I pray that having heard your word read and spoken and sung, that having witnessed your people pray and seen the picture of your grace and baptism, that those who do not yet believe will turn to you. For you are the God who promises to turn to us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.